welcome to the Tea Grannies. I'm Elise. And I'm Maria. Today we're here to talk about battles and baddies with best-selling young adult author Eileen Cook. So pour yourself a cup of tea, let's get started. Welcome Eileen. Thank you so much for having me. I think I'm supposed to introduce you. But um, okay, that would be good. <laughs> I'm just so excited that you're here. And I just want to catch up and chat with you instead. So maybe we could just forget this whole episode thing and do that. But no, Eileen is here. And Eileen is going to tell us a little bit about herself. Um, so I'm not going to dive into too much detail. But Maria and I met Eileen Cook through the Simon Fraser University, the Writer Studio program. And we both enjoyed her tutelage and guidance and mentorship very, very much. Um, so much so that I went and did two years as her TA, and those were like the best two years of my life, and I wish I could have them back. So welcome, Eileen. You can't disappoint, so no fear there. Hello. Hello. You get bonus points for the use of tutelage in a sentence, I have to say. That was pretty good. English impressive. class paid off. This is why I picked you as the TA, my friend. <laughs> that vocabulary. So thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited actually to talk about villains, um, partly because I like to write thrillers. Uh, that's been my most latest thing. I do write a little all over the spectrum. I have written adult romantic comedy. I have written uh, middle grade, which was a fantasy with a fourth grade fairy. And I have done YA, both sort of contemporary as well as thriller. And the book I'm working on right now is actually an adult mystery. So Ooh. I am not one to be contained. I will. Oh my God, I'm so excited for that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I just have to finish it. So, yeah, that's going to be lovely. So I've written a little bit all over. Uh, but because I have done sort of thrillers most recently, I do spend a fair bit of time thinking about villains. Our favorite. We love a good villain. <laughs> They're almost our favorites, right? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's rooting for the villain or like the anti-hero, that kind of thing. <laughs> so we'll start with uh, talking a little bit about the elements of a great villain. So at the last Surrey Writers Conference, the in-person one, um, I sat in on one of your workshops about crafting memorable villains. So one of the takeaways was nailing down your villain's motivation and creating a push and a pull with the hero. So aside from base motivations like self-interest or narcissism, what do you see as the most crucial elements in making a convincing antagonist? I think one of the biggest things that you put your finger on is that idea of motivation. And I think sometimes when we start out to write a book, we're like, well, they want to cause trouble. They don't like the hero. But that's not really a motivation, right? Like that's not, I mean, there are, I suppose, the odd person who like heads out into town thinking, I'm just going to cause trouble. Uh, but that's not most people. Um, and what I actually really encourage people to do is to think of, uh, for the antagonist, they are the hero. Like mm. they're the hero of their own story. So they don't actually know they're the antagonists. Like they didn't get a t-shirt when they started the book. They don't know. Um, as far as they're aware, they are, you know, the protagonist and they are doing what they're doing for a really good reason. And that reason can't be like, -ha 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 -ha. it has to be 
something else. And I know we're going to talk about traits a little bit later, but that's the kind of thing where you really want to dig down into what it is that they want. Uh, the other thing I think is really important when you're crafting a villain is that they have to be really capable. And in mm -hmm. fact, it's better if they are at least slightly, but sometimes even better if they're a lot more capable than your protagonist. Because if mm -hmm. they're kind of like, dope de dope de dope de dope as they kind of come along, we're not very surprised. I'm doing sound effects because I know this is a podcast. <laughs> so that was my... That's the sound of an antagonist just bundling along. Oh, brilliant. You can sell that um, copyright. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to put my number on that one. So, yeah, they don't know and so if if they are weak or simple or easily defeated, it's not very interesting for the reader. Mm -hmm. You know, what we want is someone who's a little bit more capable. I think that's why if you ever read any of the Sherlock Holmes books, uh, the best kind of villain was Moriarty, who was smarter than Sherlock, which was saying a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's actually who I was thinking of when you were talking about that, because in the BBC Sherlock series, he's like uh, so smart and he's like unhinged at the same time. And he is terrifying. And people were, were saying like that actor is so hot. And I'm like, he gives me nightmares because he played the villain so well. I was like, there's no way I'll ever consider this guy good looking. He haunts my dreams. But he's a great villain. Well, and I think that's kind of what we're looking for, right? You're looking mm -hmm. for someone who is a little bit dark, who maybe mirrors your protagonist a little bit. Because, mm. again, if you look at Moriarty, first off, Benedict Cumberbatch, who is Sherlock, he's a hottie in there. So, you know, if you're looking for that, they've got that in common. Uh, they're both really intelligent. And Sherlock is also a little bit unhinged. Mm -hmm. uh, not quite the same way, not quite as dark, but he definitely is a little bit unwell yeah yeah he could go the other way very easily self-proclaimed sociopath i believe yes <laughs> i love that show now i want to rewatch it <laughs> yep <laughs> there goes my weekend yeah. um, another thing that i was thinking as you were talking about uh that you want your villain to be competent and possibly more than competent even genius usually makes an even better one um in i watched a lot of anime when i was a teenager and um there's always these, um, they're action animes. I have two brothers, so we would watch them together. And the whole thing is just like, you get an episode of some story and then you get like 10 episodes of this one fight that goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. Um, but the whole series is usually about this main character or trio of characters or whatever. And they're all trying to develop their powers to defeat the main villain, who's this overpowered wild thing. But if you make your villain not quite powerful enough and then you have your main characters having to become more powerful to defeat them, at a certain point, you keep rising, you keep rising, you keep rising on either side. And then you've got these ridiculously overpowered people on both sides. And it's just like, okay, this is like nuclear World War Three happening. We're all going to die because you're all too overpowered. So yeah, finding that balance or like dissociating the stakes so that the villain is way up here, like way smarter and the hero starts lower at the bottom and they have to reach rise and reach them to catch up rather than starting them more closer together and then having this increasingly ridiculous system of powers and yeah that's another thing to keep in mind that i have found very interesting when working with magic systems and different stuff mm -hmm. like that i think you put your finger on something though which is stakes right so if your protagonist is stronger than your villain from the get-go 
the stakes are pretty low because mm-hmm. we're pretty mm-hmm. sure the protagonist is going to win. If the antagonist, if your villain is a little bit stronger, that ups the stakes. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I just think I'm just going to put a call out because I do love a good magic system and, you know, nothing wrong with going nuclear if you got the story <laughs> for it is for people to understand that villains don't always have to be that over the top. They've got their finger on the button that's going to destroy the world. And, you know, you in the brain, be, you know. <laughs> yeah, they're not peeling kittens in the back room. And, you know, like they can be someone who is causing trouble and getting in the way of what your protagonist wants. So it mm-hmm. might be you know, someone else that they go to school with, who just bullies them, who causes trouble. Like, it doesn't have to be someone who's going to blow up the school. You basically just answered my next question, or one of the questions I have later on in our notes, which is when it comes to conflict, to stakes and tension, um, those those are the delicious pieces that we're looking for. That's why we read and we write. Uh, conflict is the name of the game. Um, for someone like myself, I'm writing fantasy, and I think my natural inclination is to think of physical action-based high stakes. So give me a sword fight, give me a dog fight to the death in space, give me several near-death experiences. Um, that's going to make me happy. Maybe throw in some torture, sprinkle that in a little bit there. You know, this is what I, <laughs> this is what I live for. But um, <laughs> as you've kind of explained in your introduction, you write, you've written in plenty of other genres like contemporary romance. Um, chances are, you're not going to have a dogfight in space in contemporary romance. Not often. Not no. often. Yeah. No, maybe occasionally. <laughs> you never know. I would like, read if that. If the story calls for it, then by all mm-hmm. means, put some dogs in space. Yeah, I, I think it is so important to kind of wrap your head around the idea of what feels like life or death to someone. Mm-hmm. And I think we all know this because most of us are very privileged. We live in, you know, the... Western Canada, we have heating, electricity, we have mm-hmm. access to healthcare. There's hopefully for most of us very few life or death circumstances, but there is a lot that can feel like life or death. So mm-hmm. uh, the loss of a relationship that you were counting on can feel like a death. If you lose your job, um, that can feel like a life or death situation. If you don't get a promotion that you had been counting on and all of a sudden your idea of what your career track was going to be goes off the rails, feels like life or death. And we all know that because we've all had those moments where you're you know, crying and feeling sad and sorry for yourself. And you're usually hopefully able to kind of stand back and be like, it's actually not that bad. Like, <laughs> I'm probably okay. Um, But it doesn't feel okay. And I think if you can capture that, that feels real to people. Because that's what most of us are dealing with. Not many of us have dogfights in space. That's too bad. I feel like I would be really good at that. Except for the motion sickness. Except for the motion sickness. My dogs would be horrible at dogs in space. So I'm not taking them anywhere. Mine would be like, we want to nap. We don't want to do this. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think you just uh, you just helped me get unstuck with the story I'm writing right now. Ooh. That little conversation. Because that's where I'm at with it. I'm trying to create like a big, like at least that like physical conflict. Because it's I'm trying to keep the fantasy elements from over or having them support the romance elements instead of it just being a straight romance. 
And uh, I think I'm coming at it from the wrong angle. So that really helps. Mm. <laughs> I love it when that happens. Yeah, I do too. Be. I mean, what I would tell everybody, which I'd love to sort of sit down, is always start with the question, what would make this worse? Mm-hmm. So what would make this situation worse for the character? And and yes, like, oh, a, attack of killer bees. That would make this worse. Mm-hmm. Sure. But, you know, start with the small things, which is like, is there somebody else around to see a conflict? Like, mm-hmm. it would be bad if your boss calls you in to tell you that you totally screwed up a project at work. It's worse if that comes up at a board meeting. Yeah, that's even worse if it comes up in a board meeting where your crush from down the hall happens to be in that particular <laughs> meeting. You Gosh. know, those are all things that can make it worse. And use all the tools in your toolkit. So I think mm-hmm. as writers, sometimes we get stuck. We have a couple that we love. So for me, it's dialogue. I love writing dialogue and I love writing snappy dialogue. So when in doubt, I go to a dialogue scene, but pull in those other aspects. So even if a scene is happening, yeah, at a workplace boardroom, how could you describe that boardroom? Like really drill down instead of saying that the walls are white, like are they, you know, stark white, like a prison cell? Mm -hmm. All of those will add to that feeling of tension. And I think too often we don't use all of those things. Like is the coffee smelling really bitter? Is like the tag on the back of her suit jacket, you know, giving her hives, mm-hmm. you know, really look at all of those small little things that are going to ump the tension and the stakes for that character. Um, an exercise I used to give, you guys may remember this one from SFU, <laughs> is I would tell people to sit down and first describe the space that they're in. So whatever their office space looks like. And then I would say, okay, now draw a line, now describe it again, but imagine that it's a horror novel. Mm. So, you know, would you describe the room just slightly differently with the the terms you use be a little bit different and then draw a line and describe it again. uh, But this time from the point of view from a character who has time traveled from, I don't know, 1700s to suddenly being here. So it's different. Like what your character notices in a room is different than what you would notice in a room. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I once had a manuscript from someone who was writing a YA book and they had this teen boy describing this woman's Fendi handbag. (laughs) And I was like, (laughs) you know, I'm I'm not sure that I would know to be able to identify one at sight. Um, And I'm pretty sure this, you know, 16 year old boy that you've described to me would have no idea what a Fendi handbag is. No. And so you're you're picking out details that you might notice. And and I think mm-hmm. that's our default with setting in particular is we always think about like, well, okay, I'm gonna look around the room and see what I notice, but look around the room with your character's eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, what would they notice? And look at your word choices. If something is a bright red, you know, if they're a chef, they might call it cooked lobster red. If they're a fashionita, they might say, oh, it's the same color of red as the bottom of my shoes. You know, it's Mm -hmm. a Louis Vuitton red. Like if they, um, it's a girl who works at like the pharmacy or whatever she might be like, it's cover girl, kiss me Kate red, you know. (laughs) So they're each going to have their own kind of identification for something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you can pick those out, it will 
be more specific to your character, which will really pull your reader in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a book I read um, recently that like I enjoyed it and like the pacing was really good, but there wasn't enough world building. But even more than that, there wasn't enough of that setting from each from the character's perspective. So yeah. I was like, well, what does this like? She's like, I'm in my bedroom. And then the maid came in and I'm like, okay, but like, what does your bedroom look like? Like, I don't need to know everything, but I want to kind of know like, like, do you live in like a little bolt hole or do you live in like this big lavish bedroom? Like it was stuff like that, that I just felt like they're little, they were missing pieces throughout the entire book. Cause I just wanted to have a little bit more of like their inner life, whatever. Yeah. And I think when people do that, they, they're like, oh, I should describe her bedroom because Mariah told me I should describe her bedroom. So they're like, it was a pink bedroom. It had a queen size bed. There was an end table. At the end of the end table, there was a stack of books. <laughs> um, and the bedroom do you want to narrate everything mess. for me? Yeah. yeah. yeah right. And then, you know, it's like, that's not what's going to pull a reader in. That's not what they're interested in. Like, tell me, do they have a poster of Charles Manson on the wall? <laughs> now I'm like, wow, that's an interesting choice for a bedroom decor. Like, or is it meticulous? Like, is it a place where everything is lined up? And if you open the closet, all the clothes are hanging, you know, in a color coordinated fashion, or, you know, those are the kinds of details, like what makes that space uniquely theirs? Mm-hmm. Um, that's what's interesting to people, not, I mean, well, I suppose maybe interior designers are interested in like, it was eight by 14. It had this <laughs> um, but most people, they're not interested. Sure. So since you write amazing thrillers, I have to ask this question. How do you manage to lead the reader away from the answer throughout the novel while simultaneously making sure they believe the twist that you deliver later on? So... I have a couple of pieces of advice for this. And the first one is probably the one that is like the least exciting, which is I'm not sure that a twist is always as important as we have made them out to be. Mm -hmm. Like suddenly I feel as someone who reads a lot of thrillers that all of a sudden people are like, waha, it was never the husband. It was always his brother's twin secret person, mother's (laughs) brother's uncle. Who, you know, was living inside the house secretly in the basement. Um, and they're trying so hard to come up with something like, oh, no one will ever see this coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a really great twist is fun. But I think what's more interesting to people than who done it is why done it. Mm. So if yeah. you're gonna play with a twist sometimes, really make me think like, oh, I thought he was doing this because he was jealous. Uh, But Mm -hmm. now if I end up finding out that the motivation was not that it was actually that, you know, he had life insurance on his wife the whole time, then that changes how I see the book. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. feel free to play with that and not get so caught in feeling like you have to have some secret twist. But Mm -hmm. if you are going to have a twist, um, (laughs) take a lesson from magicians. So if anyone likes magic, uh, my ex used to be a big fan of close-up magic, like card magic and various Mm -hmm. things like that. And it's always interesting if you see someone who's really, really good at it because it's all misdirection. Mm -hmm. So it's this ability to get you to look at one thing, to focus on one thing while they're actually at the same time pulling off the magic trick and you don't necessarily see it. 
So as an author, I think there's kind of two ways that you can really pull off misdirection. So one is to hide things in plain sight. And by that, I mean almost bury something in a list of details. So if you have a character who they walk into a room and the fact that there is a stuffed teddy bear on the bed, which later is going to be really important because it's going to be one of those nanny cam bears, Mm -hmm. right? Then, you know, have them describe a bunch of things and then sort of the bears just in there with everything else. It's just one detail of a whole bunch of details so that someone later is like, oh, it was there the whole time, but I didn't see it. Uh, just in terms of some basic facts is people pay most attention to the beginning of a paragraph and the end of a paragraph. Mm-hmm. So if you're burying something, sometimes putting it in the middle of a paragraph can be really useful. The other thing that I would say when you're trying to pull off a twist with misdirection is to have somebody see it, but have them either misunderstand or take a different perspective of what they think that means. And you see that all the times in murder mysteries. So there'll be, you know, a suspect, the, you know, detective will make a decision like, well, it couldn't have been them because of X or Y. And then later, of course, you find out that X and Y were a setup and weren't true. So at the moment it got ignored Um, or, you know, sort of passed over. But later, when you go back, you see it in a different way. And we do that all the time. Like, I'm a huge fan of the fact that, you know, keep in mind that we're always as weak as our own perception. So if I come downstairs, and I see, you know, somebody, you know, hugging someone else, I might be like, Oh, I didn't know they were in a relationship. I didn't know that was going on. And it may turn out like, Oh, that was their friend, or that was their cousin or their sister. I mean, you see that in every like not every romantic comedy, but it comes up a lot, right? There's Frequently. a lot of hugging of yeah. sisters and cousins and those kinds of things, right? So it's that whole idea of like, oh, he, you know, I thought he liked me, but no, he must clearly like this other person. So mm-hmm. therefore I'm going to behave in these certain ways that's going to keep us apart. And then of course, later I'm going to find out that wasn't the case. So if you can, you know, if, particularly if you have a point of view character have them misunderstand or misidentify what a piece of information might mean. And that will allow you to pull that twist off. Okay. That's what I got to do. I'm like writing my main character right now. It's like, she's too smart. Like you gotta, you gotta make a mistake somewhere. Otherwise (laughs) book is getting harder and harder to write. (laughs) Well, you want her to be smart, but it doesn't mean that she's accurate. Right. So I think it's that thing of, uh, we all have our own perspective that we that lens that we see things through through our own experience, right? So we have something where we like, well, that, you know, I would never do that. And so we don't necessarily think like, oh, other people might do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can get us into trouble. I like that <laughs> a lot better than the alternative of, oh, well, this character is really smart, but they just kind of forgot that one thing that one time. So yeah, if, I don't you know, like the that. bad thing happened. <laughs> I've read a few books recently where that's the thing is like, no, you're smarter than that. And I know you're smarter than that. And this mm-hmm. wouldn't happen. It feels cheap when that yeah. happens. Yeah. Yeah. It is cheap. a cheat. I mean, I, th- mm-hmm. I think there's there's certain things that readers um, have almost no tolerance for. Mm-hmm. And one is it's the like, oh, here's this thing that I never mentioned before. And suddenly that's the, the key thing. Like, that's a mm-hmm. cheat. You can't just suddenly be like, did I not mention that there was a butler in the library with a wrench? <laughs> well, surprise. <laughs> there <Oops>. is. <laughs> you know, like that's, 
that's just a cheat. Like it has to have been there. That's what mm-hmm. is. That's truly what we mean by a twist. Um, but I do just want to put a call out. I, I love a lot of books. I read a lot of Robin Harding. Um, and full disclosure, I, I know her as well. She's a friend of mine. And one of the things that I love about her books is it's almost never a secret who done it. The Ooh, reason okay. that, what keeps you turning pages is why did they do it? Yeah. Um, and that's what you're reading to find out is mm-hmm. to understand the motivation for something. Um, and it makes you see it in a completely different light. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found that. Um, did either of you watch the movie Knives Out? couple years ago no not yet. yes oh my god right you need to watch it immediately okay. um that's what you're going to do after this but that was that's the whole premise you know who done it from the beginning and then you uncover all the pieces of why and the intricacies of it throughout and then there's still manages to be these twists that catch you completely by surprise like it's not about the who done it you don't really care about that everything mm-hmm. else is what makes it so much more interesting and it was yeah it's in the style of like agatha christie type murder mystery things, okay, yeah. but completely turns it on its head because you're not wondering who done it the whole time. You're wondering about everything else. And it's okay. so good. Chris I Evans like has a, a nice sweater in it. <laughs> we do. I do love a good knitwear as, right? as a knitter. Um, I would say there's a book by Barbara Vine. And of course, I can't think of the title, but Barbara Vine um, writes kind of psychological mysteries. And one of the things that she did in one of her books is it opened with, and I can't remember the character's name, so we're going to use Elise. So it was like, Elise Volkman killed Mariah because she could not read. And then the story, and you're like, wait, what? What? And then the whole story is kind of uncovering what what is meant by that. And it has to do with because the character couldn't read a note that was left, she took a certain action that led to murder. So it's just a very interesting way of sort of unpacking those things. Mm -hmm. And I think you can have a a lot of fun with that. I think this loops us back nicely because we've been we've been going on about motivation, which is what makes things very interesting, more interesting. And we talked about the beginning. um, The motivation for your villain needs to be pretty well thought out. Otherwise, they're not going to be convicting. They're not going to be interesting. Um, if they just want to watch the world burn, okay, why do they want to watch the world burn? If, like, if you're going to use that, then um, unpack it for us. So that, this is kind of a throwaway silly question to some people, but I really want to know um, who is or are your favorite villains and what are your favorite villainous traits that come out of these crazy motivations that we have for the things we do. So I think the the one that I, pay, I always find it, whenever people say like, what's your favorite? I'm like, oh, why, why would you do that to me? Why? Why? I won't limit you to just me, one. Right? If you want to pick more than one, I'll let you. <laughs> I'm not that evil. I, I picked one. I picked one because I, I, I picked one that would buttress the argument I wanted to make. <laughs> Way to go. Um, very political of me. I picked Amy from Gone Girl, uh, which mm. is the book by Gillian Flynn. That's a great um, book. I love that book. And one of the reasons I like it, and I don't think it's a spoiler alert because this book has been out and has been everywhere. Um, Amy's pretty twisted, right? Like she's, she's a messed up girl. Mm-hmm. The author gives this tremendous deep point of view. And as a result of that, you're kind of what I would say, like these close to understanding why she did it. Mm-hmm. Right. So he is a cheater. Her husband's a cheater. And so she's like, I'm going to teach him a lesson. (laughs) Now, I'm going to argue as one who had a husband who was a cheater, (laughs) like going this far is probably a really good way to end up in prison. So I wouldn't recommend it. 
but it's kind of tapping into that feeling that we sometimes have. And I think for me, this is what really makes villainous traits is rather than going with the, you know, moi, ha, 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 pick what we might say is a heroic trait and then just push it too far. Ooh. Oh, I love that. If you take something like loyalty, loyalty is a great trait, yeah. right? Like if I'm super <laughs> loyal to someone, you would say, oh, well, that's really good. That's very likable. Um, but if I'm so loyal that I'm willing to cover up a murder and maybe, you know, take out other people who are going to get you into trouble uh, because I'm just so loyal to you. Now that loyalty has become a villainous trait. Mm -hmm. um, love is a wonderful trait. Take it too far. You're a little stalker obsessive person, right? Yes. Like now that's not so good anymore, right? <laughs> like if it's that thing like, I would love you to death. Like that sounds really romantic, but there are people where you're like, wow, don't need quite so much love. Maybe a little less. A little less love would be good. Um, so really taking a moment and thinking about, you know, maybe even taking your protagonist and saying like, what is the trait that you love about them? And maybe give that same trait to your antagonist, mm. but push mm -hmm. it too far. Yeah. Push it to the point where they're making bad decisions. Oh, I like that a lot. See, I kind of use that when I'm writing flaws for a character. Like um, someone's like honest to a fault. Like that can be mm -hmm. bad in the wrong in the right situation or the wrong situation. And so I usually tend to look at it as like flaws, but I like that better as like a, like for villains to give them that trait, but just take it too far. That's so much more interesting yeah. and evil. That's, that's what I do. That's my job. <laughs> take it just a little too far. Well, I think we all know someone in our life too, who you're like, man, if you wanted to be, like evil you would be really good at it like please don't ever like I mean I say this about my husband all the time I was like he's so sweet he's so great like yeah he could be so villainous if he wanted to if he was tipped the wrong way you guys better watch out because <laughs> he's he's kind of intense about it but you know he's kind-hearted enough that he hasn't gone that way yet. I mean, there's still lots of time. <laughs> I like that you left it open for him. Like, there's time for his character arc to develop. Yeah. <laughs> He's only 31. You can still there's develop that anti-hero streak. We just got to wait for it. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's interesting. Um, when you look at the people around you, you can, you can use that on them. And, like, the traits and the people that you love, if you think about them doing it in an extreme way, especially if it's someone in your family who would probably do it for the sake of the family or whatever. Um, that can be a little scary. Yeah. It's Especially usually not what has happened to us in our life. It's the story mm -hmm. that we tell ourselves mm -hmm. about what's happened to us. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I stress that all the time, right? Because you'll meet two people who have been through um, I'll pick a painful divorce. Mm -hmm. And one person will decide, I will never love again. Men are horrible, you know, and I'm going to become a serial Dexter killer taking out cheating spouses, right? <laughs> Just option A. Yeah. <laughs> option B is someone who is like, oh, like that relationship didn't work out the way that I wanted. He had flaws. I had flaws, but I'm going to go on to something else. Mm -hmm. It's all the story that you tell yourself about that. And so I think really kind of figuring out what's your villain's 
story about what's happened to them will help you kind of play with those things a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. That's where backstory comes in. Mm-hmm. I don't want to miss a backstory. Yeah. Even if you don't put so a lot of it in. I book but... about it. <laughs> 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 I wrote a whole book about build better characters, which is all about mm-hmm. understanding backstory. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I have a little bit of a fascination. It's a counselor in me. I used to be a counselor. Yeah. <laughs> Which actually brings us right to another question that we have for you that I'm going to steal from Elise. <laughs> Perfect segue. Go for it. Yeah. So mental health has been such a big focus, I think, for a lot of people since COVID and Elise and I just in general because of who we are. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it plays uh, a part in the writing process and and it can and drafting and querying and publishing mm-hmm. can be draining and it's harder than it looks. And and it's a marathon, not a sprint, and, and it, but it can be very disheartening. So my question was, do you have any mental health tips that are specifically for writers or creative types? So I think first off is to understand that creative types, we are just more vulnerable mm-hmm. to mental health issues. Um, the fact that we feel deeply, the fact that we have big emotions is what makes us capable of creating great art. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, the downside to that <laughs> is it leaves us vulnerable on all those sides. So I remember I was uh, seeing a counselor at one point for myself and the counselor said like, well, what's the worst thing that would happen? And I was like, oh, <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Let me roll up my sleeves and yeah. tell you the ways that this could go. That's me at therapy. Yep. Let me give you a list. <laughs> Right. So I'm like, and then this could happen and that could happen. And then I could end up homeless and then this would happen and that would happen. And she was sort of like, wow. <laughs> like that escalated quickly. <laughs> yeah. Like, wow. And I was like, but that's, that's what we do as writers, right? Like as an author, like I even said, ask yourself all the time, what's the worst thing that could happen? So if you can um, play that game and just, but understand that it's good for writing and not so good for personal mental health stuff. So that is something to keep in mind. Two is the stuff that is the same for everyone, but is so needs to be stressed, which is do all the self care, Mm -hmm. get yourself enough sleep, eat decent foods, try and get out and move once in a while. If you're on medication, take it. (laughs) If you need to see a counselor, um, and I think one of the more important thing is to make sure you're surrounding yourself with really good people. So creative types, sometimes there's can be envy and jealousy and some really nastiness that can come in. Uh, cut those people out if you can. Uh, surround yourself with people who are going to pick you up. And my last piece of advice on that one is to know what triggers you so that you can catch yourself before you slide all the way down. So mm-hmm. if you picture yourself like walking along, you know, a rocky, you know, outcrop and you're trying to get to the top of Everest, which is publishing, right? So we're like, I'm going to get there. I'm going to finish the book. I'm going to do these things, right? If you slip and fall, if you can catch yourself early, it's a lot easier to pick yourself up. If you slide all the way to the bottom, it's just, you can get back up there. It's just going to take you longer. So one of the biggest things that I learned to do was to start to notice like what things are happening. How does it show up in my body? Um, If I'm getting more headaches, that's almost always tension for me, right? So it's like, okay, I'm stressed about something. Um, And so if I can catch it early, then I can kind of put in those 
all those healthy things that will help um, and kind of pick me up along the way. Mm-hmm. That's really good. So we talked a lot about self-care in that last little section, um, mental health tips and those, we need those all the time. Uh, that's why I go to counseling. But um, <laughs> there's there's another piece of, I don't know if it's mental health so much as creative type health that we always like to dig into. And I've heard, Eileen, I've heard you talk about this at a few different workshops and as TA and everything, but it's always good to hear it again because we know how much we forget things. Um, but I guess the, the essence of the question is how do we get out of our own way? What strategies do you find most effective when you're trying to put those words on the page and whether it's life events or your own brain events that are preventing you from having the motivation or just you can't do it, you can't get it out? What, um, what would you suggest? What kinds of things do you do when you're in, in that space? So I think the first thing, which seems obvious, which is be nice to yourself. I think Mm -hmm. we tend to default to like, I'm a loser. If I was a real writer, I would get words down. I'm a horrible person. I say this is what's important to me, but I don't do it. And these are all things like I can't imagine we would ever do this to someone else. Like if Elise, if you call me up and you're like, I'm I'm just really struggling to get words out, I would be like, well, I guess you're just not a real writer. (laughs) (laughs) I guess you don't know how to prioritize things, do you? (laughs) Right? Like, we would never do that to someone else, but we do it to ourselves like it's going Mm -hmm. out of style. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. So the first thing is to be kind to yourself and to remember that writing is not production. And I get caught in this because it's, Mm -hmm. it's really easy to be like, oh, I have a word count goal. And that's definitely how I measure my progress. So it's like there's so many words I want to get done each day and you know, when I don't hit that, I have that moment of like, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> um, that was another sound effect. So we're putting that in there. They're beautiful. Uh, I wah, love them. <laughs> Which is, it's not a, we're not making widgets. Like if it was as simple as just like, oh, I just need to do 2000 words a day every day, you know, then this will be done by this time. Mm. Um, but it doesn't work that way. So One, remember it's not production, which means someday what you're celebrating is really small things. So it's, you know, figuring something out or coming up with just like that perfect line or a great description. So Mm -hmm. celebrate those small things. I'm friends with uh, author Liza Palmer, who speaks at the Surrey Conference, and she does some great stuff. Um, And Liza's spectacular. And one of the things that she talks about is give yourself credit if you just open the document. Mm. Like you ever have days where you're like, I don't even want to open it. I don't even want to click on it. I don't want to click on Scrivener. I'm like, oh, no. Right? Like just (laughs) open it and just, you know, have that moment where you're just like, "I, I did that. I got in there and I looked at it. Take time to brainstorm or mind map. I'm a huge mm. fan of mind mapping. This is something I got into recently. I think some of us outline books before we write them. Some people don't. And there is no right or wrong either way. Um, I think the advantage sometimes of having outlined is you you know at least what's supposed to happen next. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so even just taking a moment and just being like, okay, what could happen in that scene? And just do a bullet point list for yourself. Like, oh, it'd be fun to have this, or it'd be fun if somebody came in and did that. So take the pressure off writing the scene and just brainstorm it a little bit. And then sometimes when you sit down and write it, you have some things you know you want to include, and that will kind of help you out. Mm -hmm. The next piece of advice I say all the time, but for 
all that is holy, please stop comparing your rough drafts to final books. <laughs> so I over and over people will be like, oh, this is just crap. And it's like, well, you know, you know what Margaret Atwood wrote as a first draft? Crap. That's what everybody <laughs> writes first, right? Like no one is like, no one has this thing where it just spews out of the end of their pen or on their laptop as this beautiful prose. Yeah. But we all um, think it will happen to us. Yeah, yeah <laughs> of course, it's like, it's going to happen to me, right? And it's like, yeah. we look at it, and I know for myself, I stopped, like, before I really got serious about writing, I started a million projects that I never finished. Yeah. And the reason would be is I would start them, and I would have this great idea, and it would be, like, the best idea ever, and yep. I couldn't wait to write it because it was so good. Mm -hmm. And then I would start writing it, and then it was not so good. <laughs> at all and then it was actively bad <laughs> and then i would be like oh like it must be a bad idea mm. i clearly need another idea so i would jettison that project and i would be like now i have a wonderful great idea <laughs> and i would start this cycle all over again um and it took me a long time to kind of wrap my head around the fact like that's why there are revisions yeah <laughs> that's mm -hmm. why there are multiple drafts yeah. is so stop comparing and feeling bad about your writing because it's not exactly what you wanted it to be like of course it's not uh and then my last piece of advice on this one is just starting small so that you have a little bit of success so again that might be like i'm going to open the document <laughs> today and if that is all I do, it is a win today. Um, I went through a really rough patch after my divorce where I just, there was a lot of upheaval in my life. So I was mm -hmm. selling, separate from the divorce, I was selling my home. I was, you know, there's a lot of friends loss that happens when you're split mm -hmm. up. We were together 25 years. So it wasn't like, like our stuff was fully enmeshed. <laughs> Let's mm -hmm. just put it that way. And so I just really locked up for a long time. And kind of the way I got back into it was almost like sneaking back into it, where I would tell myself, I'm going to open the document and I'm going to try and write for 15 minutes. And at the end of 15 minutes, if I got a few words down, great. <laughs> if I got nothing down, I at least tried for 15 minutes and I can then shut it and then go on with the rest of the day. But that was so much better than these days where I would all day, I would be like, I really should write. I should write. I need to write. I got to write. I'm a horrible person because I didn't write. And then I would go to bed and I would start the next day again and that same thing. So just having a small history of success, like I opened it for 15 minutes. I got a few words in there. It's like, okay, I can do this. And then you can add on to that, right? You can build up to that to where you're spending, you know, 30 minutes or an hour in your manuscript. I think it's that thing where we're so accustomed to not wanting to be uncomfortable that when we sit down and it doesn't come right away, we don't want to sit through that uncomfortable feeling for 10 or 15 minutes till we get started. We'd rather just, yeah. well, try again tomorrow. <laughs> Going to go watch some Netflix. See ya. And, and there's and so many tough. good Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a great thing to go do instead of writing. But uh, yeah, I've been trying to work on that myself where I sit down and just make myself get through that first like 10 minutes where a lot of those doubts are kind of running through my head. And then just be like, even if you write, like Lisa and I have this thing where we're like, write a hundred words at least. So then I'll write a hundred words and then I'll be like, well, I could probably do a hundred more. And then some days I'm like, oh, I wrote 1800 words. <laughs> And some days I write 101 words and I'm like, all right, I'm done. <laughs> Pen down, I'm out. Yeah. Like, yes, I think I'm it out. is that thing of 
And sometimes I write and I think, oh, I'm just forcing it. It's just terrible, right? I feel like Mm -hmm. I'm just dragging the words out. And then you read it the next day and you're like, you know, maybe it's not that bad. Like, (laughs) you know, there's stuff I would change, but it's not like I thought it was so horrible and, you know, forced. And it's like, oh, actually, it's it's kind of okay. Mm -hmm. And often Mm -hmm. I find when I reread my stuff, my drafts, I can't remember which scenes were like, oh, I remember loving that versus like, oh, I hated that when I wrote it. Like, I can't really tell the difference. Mm-hmm. So switching gears, one of the things that Maria and I talked about together when we were planning out this episode was a question that Maria had that wasn't necessarily related to the battles and baddies, the villains conversation we were having before. Um, I, unless I guess you see publishing as a big villain to conquer. Um <laughs> But one of our big questions, and I'm very curious about this, is how much does your work change between your first draft that, I don't know how you do this if nobody sees it or what, but between your first draft and publication. So essentially, how much influence does the traditional publishing process have on your ideas? Um, And who decides what makes it into the final draft? And what does that look like? So first off, I ultimately have the final say of what goes into a, a book and what doesn't go into a book. And and if you're traditionally published, the only thing maybe if you had something and an editor was like, absolutely not, they could in theory pull the, the contract from you. But I have actually, I can never think of a time that I've ever heard anyone have that experience. <laughs> so I don't think it comes up very often. I mean, the editor's job is to help you craft the best vision for your book. Um, And that means that it is your story. So in terms of how much does my story change, probably the biggest amount of change happens from that very first draft to the second draft. Mm -hmm. Because my first drafts are pretty ugly. Like I have now gotten in the habit of, I just push forward. So I used to write a little bit, go back, fix it, then write a little bit more, then go back and fix it, then write a little bit more, then go back and fix it, and write a little bit more. Um, and I would sometimes get stuck and then I would just stall. So now mm-hmm. my thing is like, I just, I'm like that scene in Thelma and Louise, like the foot's on the gas and I'm like, we're going for it, <laughs> you know? And it's just like, I'm going to make sure we get to the end of this book. Um, and as a result, there's a lot of roadkill that was up on the side road of that kill. manuscript. Um, and that first draft is all me. Like the from first draft to second draft, I usually have my door closed in terms mm-hmm. of letting anyone see the manuscript. It's just me sorting out what I actually want that story to look like. Okay. Um, and then I'm typically almost always sharing it with a few other writer friends and getting some input in terms of what they think is working. Um, then it goes off to my agent, uh, the divine and wonderful Barbara Powell at Irene Goodman Agency. Uh, and she is someone who will give me feedback. Uh, and then it's going to the editor. So typically, by the time my book is, is at the publishing house, the editor is really looking at just how do we sharpen it? Okay. Um, mm-hmm. I have never been through an editor horror process where they're like, maybe we should just change the entire back half of this. Like, <laughs> usually what they're doing is, uh, you know, like, do we need this character? Can we collapse these two characters mm-hmm. into one? Or... You know, can you underscore motivation earlier in the book? Like, it wasn't until this point that I understood, you know, why they were doing something. Can you bring things forward? I think really good editors are not telling you what to do. They're raising questions for you. Like, (laughs) what would make this work? Or I'm getting a little lost in the weeds here. How can you sharpen this? And it's up to you as the writer 
to figure that out. The last round of things is copy edits. And all I'm just going to give a call out to every copy editor out there. God bless you. Um, <laughs> I, I have a master's degree. I teach creative writing and I apparently cannot use a comma if my life depended on it. <laughs> I, I will put commas in like, like they're confetti and it's New Orleans for Mardi Gras. Like I'm like, you know what this needs is another comma. Like, I oh think God, whenever I pause with my thinking, I'm like, the character walked into the room, comma. She saw this, comma. <laughs> um, so I definitely need a copy editor here to go in and, and do a cleanup for me because I just, I don't see it. I can see often grammatical errors in someone else's work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to point out your problem <laughs> on my own. I don't see see it in the same way and so I am always very grateful for the copy editor and their cleanup mm-hmm. it's so important to get other eyes on your work because you uh, look yeah. at it for so long you're like oh, this looks yeah. great and then you send it yeah. off and you're like I put and three times in a row in the same sentence oh, if <laughs> and is your only problem how many people have put like <laughs> other bizarre words like it's like how often can you use the word content or whatever it's like oh, oh I can apparently <laughs> use it a lot it's okay um, I I got on to write the other day and I'm like I have a brilliant idea for a sentence and I like write it and I'm like that's so good and then I look up two lines earlier from where I left off the day before to the exact same sentence it was so good it, it was, was that good it twice <laughs> I, was I was like, man, now those 10 words don't even count my word count today. Delete. Okay. Delete. Yeah. Yeah. It was so, yeah. Very fun I moment. find, yeah, like getting another eye on your work is just always helpful. And if you're indie published, which is a great way to be able to go these days, just making sure that you're still taking the same amount of time, that you're not just hitting mm-hmm. publish right after you type the words the end like yeah make sure that you're going through and you know getting some other eyes on it looking if there's any ways to tighten the story to make it better um see if you have you know a grammar nazi in your family somewhere that can go through and take a look even if you're great at it again i don't think we see our own mistakes in the same way we just yeah don't. no yeah yeah just, and speaking yeah. with my editor hat on yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've edited so many of other people's manuscripts and been like, yeah, I'm just catching all these things mm-hmm. left, right, and center. Right, you right. so much on mine, like so Open much. Open up my draft and it's like, I'm an editor, I can do this. And then I send it off to Maria and she's like, well, there's like a spelling error here and I'm not sure about this because I don't know the rules, but this punctuation just doesn't seem co- like, is this the way it works? I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have a lot of work to do. <laughs> yeah. Again, fresh eyes. They're all really obvious. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So uh, my last publishing question is, uh, I remember a long time ago, I think it was at like Creative Inc. or something. um, I went to one of your sessions because I'm I'm just obsessed with you. Apparently, I go to all your sessions. Um, (laughs) It's one of those heroic virtues that can turn a little creepy. (laughs) 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 Haven't gone full stalker yet. There's still time. Uh, but I remember you telling us you had to part ways with your first agent. And so my question was, did you have to begin querying all over again and go back into hell and do that? Or were you able to find a new agent like other in another way? You're all trying to avoid query hell, aren't you? Like, oh God, I'm doing it right now. It's terrible. Yeah. And first off, just a note about queries. Like, I think it's so discouraging with queries because... You, you send your work out and you're, you're getting no's. 
and you're hearing back that someone and you're like, I must be a horrible writer. Like no one likes what I'm doing, but it's different than that. Like, I want you to think of the last 15 books that you read. And out of those books, how many were you like, oh my God, I love this. Where you like had to call a friend and be like, oh my God, have you read da da da? No, oh, you have to read it, right? Because that's the kind of love that the agent needs to have. Because mm-hmm. rather than just calling a friend and saying, hey, pick up this book for $14.95 from, you know, chapters, they're calling a publisher and saying, wouldn't you love to give me like $40,000 for this book? <laughs> so it has to be a lot, a lot of love. Right. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't mean that you don't have a good story. It doesn't mean any of those things. It just means they have to have that huge passion for it. So I would Mm -hmm. say that. Um, And I also tell people a lot of people do change agents. It's it's fairly common, I Mm -hmm. think, as you kind of go along in the industry, what you're looking for might change. Uh, in my case, my first agent was making the decision that she probably wanted to get out of the field. She hadn't left it yet, but she was mentally already kind of done. Um, and so I, I wanted to find someone else. So I would say I do think it was easier as a published writer. I did have some contacts, which helped. Uh, but the actual agent that I went with, Barbara, I had no contacts with. And it was a cold query, the same oh, wow. as anyone else. Okay. Um, so there you have it. So And I would say last time I asked her, I think she said something like 80% of her clients were people she found in the quote unquote slush pile. Yeah. Uh, I think, again, one of the big myths of um, publishing is that, oh, you have to know somebody, you know, Mm. you have to be in the know. And the truth is that's not actually the case. Mm. Um, I would say the vast majority of people are found in slush piles. Yeah, that's encouraging. That is what I've heard also. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I will do a call out because I do love her book. So uh, my agent, Barbara Powell, wrote a book, Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Publishing, but basically we're afraid to ask. Um, She does a column for Writer's Digest, and she used to be a stand-up comic. (laughs) So it's one, it's just really funny to read it. um, And two, it's a lot of great advice from someone who's on that side of the desk. So. That's awesome. Adding that to my humongously long to be read pile. There you go. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's out of control. Okay. <laughs> I was looking at getting a new bookshelf. And then I looked at how expensive the new bookshelf is going to be. And I was like, maybe I'll just make piles on the end tables for a little <laughs> while longer. <laughs> if you stack them up, they make their own shelves. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's working for now. It's working for now. Okay, so now we are moving into kind of a general Q&A. These questions may or may not feel related, um, but we're just going to shoot through them because I think we could talk for days if we try to make this an actual conversation. So I'm going to start with my next question, um, and maybe you can answer it quickly, but... As a TA, I wondered this too, and I wonder if we had conversations about it and I've forgotten, wouldn't surprise me. But when you are considering writers for the Writer's Studio program, in case anyone listening is interested in throwing their hat in the ring for that, um, what draws you to a submission? What draws you to pick the students that you pick? And I know that you've fought over students with other professors for their cohorts. So what is it that makes that happen? What, what sparks that conflict? 
to Squid Game, Hunger Game, Deathmatch for <laughs> professors. And I, I, 100% what I'm looking for is someone who's a storyteller. So I can work with any writer to get better at point of view or overwritten dialogue or fixed pacing issues. So what I'm looking for is someone who just knows how to tell a story. Um, and I think too often, if you get caught up, like pretty writing can be beautiful, um, but it doesn't move a story forward. So I would much rather have someone who had a clunky sentence who can't use a comma, God bless him, uh, but who can <laughs> tell me a story that is interesting where I want to know what happens. Mm. That makes me feel better about being picked for the writer's studio. It's like, oh, good. It wasn't total garbage. Yes. That's great. No, and I'm also looking for them, obviously, to not be um, an asshole. I don't know if I can yeah. say that on your podcast. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, okay. Yeah, like there are some people like because there is a, a letter of intent. Like I'm looking for someone who clearly wants to be there, who's open and excited to be learning and all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. Awesome. I love that. Uh, our next question, these are, some of these are from um, our Instagram Q&A. So this one is, where do you get your inspiration for your books? I love this question because I always wonder, like, how do you not get inspiration? Like, for me, yeah. it's absolutely everywhere. Like, I find yeah. things in the news and conversations that I'm having with friends and art. Um, the secret for me is putting those ideas together in different ways. Yeah. Um, and I actually, um, because it's digital now, I used to keep it in paper form, but I used to like rip things out of the paper or write them down, like just write it down. Cause you never know how you might combine it with something else. Mm -hmm. So if you see something that's a cool, interesting thing, just make a note of it and see where it goes. Yeah. Cool. I love that. Mm -hmm. I've been compiling an ideas document, um, Actually, I probably have several and they're all split up, but I want to merge yeah. them together. Because I've, I've got I've the, the Pinterest mood board things going yep. on now yeah. and, and they're going to get out of control. My Pinterest is always out of control, but the mood boards are a little bit, I'm like, okay, I really need to stop pinning like these really cool like Regency dresses. <laughs> it just dresses. makes me want to buy a dress. Yeah. Just, you just need to go shopping. That's what, yeah. I'm, that's there. <laughs> yeah, that's so what my I'm curious. Pinterest boards are telling me. <laughs> Cosplay and you're set. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So our next one is more about craft again. Um, what's the easiest part and the hardest part of the writing process for you? <laughs> like there is an easy part. Like <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say the thing that I actually really enjoy now is revisions, which is funny mm -hmm. to me because I used to hate them. I used to be like one draft and then I wanted to be onto the next thing. And now I love that when I have the story down even if it's ugly, you know, as we said, with all the roadkill on the side, I love like, okay, now I know how I want to go about fixing it. Um, the one thing that I struggle with pretty much every single time is that three quarter point of the story. Mm -hmm. Like you're not quite to the end. Like to me, that's when it always yeah. seems like I don't know where I'm going. I'm no longer in love with the idea. It doesn't seem shiny and bright anymore. It feels like everyone else has already done this and probably did it better um, and that's where I tend to fall apart. And it's interesting because I've been asked at conferences where people say like, well, you've now written over a dozen novels. Do you find it easier? And it's like, no, <laughs> <laughs> I don't find it easier at all. The one difference is that I now when I hit those rough parts, I think, oh, I've been here before. Like there's a familiarity. So it's like, that's what it is. I have a friend who runs marathons and she says, I, I don't like, 
I will go and cheer, but I am never going to run a marathon. Um, but she goes and she said, it's always the same. It's always horrible. There's always a certain part where you get a blister, where your fruits, mm. like where you get a stitch in your side, all the like horrible things. You get nipple chafing. Why, why do people do <gasps> I heard of that? I yeah, heard like, of like, that. Like, it would happen to me once and I'd be like, and I am out. Um, but she's like, <laughs> it, you know, it happens. But she's like, you know, if you've run at least one marathon, you know, like, oh, I can get through this. I can mm-hmm. survive this. Mm-hmm. And I think it's often the same with writing a book. There's a lot of really, there's a lot of nipple chafing in writing. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Uh, and it can, in fact, get better. <laughs> That's pretty bad. That reminds me of like spin class. Like I'm always in the first like five or 10 minutes of class. I'm like, I'm never going to make it. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And then I always make it to the end of the class and I'm always yep. really proud of myself. And that's very, yep. very much how drafting feels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Haven't been able to push through the actual running marathons, but rock climbing. Yeah, that's yeah. where I do it too. <laughs> yeah. Running is not my jam. Again, Mm-mm. not a fan. <laughs> Unless I'm running away from something. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> All right. So our next question was, uh, what hints can you give us about your next book? All right. So... I can, I can tell you a few hints about my next book. It's going to be an adult. It's going to be a little Agatha Christie when that we were talking about that earlier. So it's a closed door mystery. When we talk about inspiration, I don't know how many people, there was an article that appeared in the New York Times called a bad art friend. Um, <laughs> if people do a search for it, it's a fascinating article about a writer's group that basically blew up and there are now huge lawsuits and people suing each other and a whole host of oh yeah it's a hot hot mess it's fascinating but a hot mess um and i i found that kind of interesting so i have an idea where um there's a a writing retreat um and not everybody's coming out alive (gasps) oh i love that oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) not everybody's gonna make it so that is, I'm having just so much fun with it and coming up with who's at it and all of those things. So it's been a lot of fun and it's fun to write an adult for a change. I've been writing YA for a very long time. So this mm-hmm. is nice. Oh, this is going to be so fun. So we better watch out if you put up like a, a writer's retreat invitation yeah. on Creative Academy. Yeah. we got to be like, yeah, oh, we can't make research. it. Yeah. <laughs> It's only one way to make this realistic. Is to <laughs> She's looking for ideas, guys. Let go. <laughs> Now I want to go. Um, So next one, changing gears again a little bit. What advice would you give to a writer who is new to writing young adult? Uh, The nice thing is I've been given the same advice I would give to a writer writing any particular genre, which is first off uh, to have fun, to go in and enjoy that process, to make sure you're reading, uh, in this case, YA. But if you want to write a thriller, then make sure you're reading thrillers. If you want to write romance, make sure you're writing romance or reading romance. Um, and the last part is to respect the reader. And this comes up, I think, particularly for YA, because sometimes people are like, I'm going to teach them kids a lesson, right? And so yeah. you have these characters who are like, gosh, Johnny, drugs sure are bad. <laughs> yeah, they are, Susan, and that's why I will never take them again. <laughs> You know, a kid that's not looking for an after-school special to teach them what they should do, they can sniff that out. They're looking Mm -hmm. for a good story. And that doesn't mean that you can't have a message. And your message might be that drugs can really mess you up and screw you up. But respect them as the reader and deliver them a story that they're going to want to read. 
Mm-hmm. And that holds true for anything. If you are writing romance, don't be like, I'm going to write romance because I hear there's money in romance. Um, you know, but you don't read the genre and you don't like it, mm-hmm. then don't write it. You have to really kind of love the genre that you're playing in, I think. Yeah, I'm glad you gave the same advice that we are always harping on on our podcast, which is read as research. So yeah. read what you want to write. If you want to write fantasy, you better be reading fantasy or you just won't be as good as you could be. You yeah. won't hit all the beats. And I don't trust people. Like I've only met a few. I would say the vast majority of writers that I meet are all big readers and they love books. Mm-hmm. Like that's why they became writers. Um, but every so often I'll read someone they're like, oh, I don't, I don't read YA. I just want to write a YA. And I think, <laughs> why? Like, <laughs> why? like, I don't understand. I mean, first off, if you're like, you know, I'm going to go into writing because it's a really great way to get rich quick. Like, boy, was that a bad plan. Like, you know, it's not something you should be doing for that purpose. So I would think you would have to love what you're, what you're reading and then wanting to create your own story in that. But mm-hmm. definitely respect your reader and love, love the genre that you're writing. Uh, this is a little similar to one of our other questions, but we'll ask it anyway. Uh, what inspired you to start writing? And then to add on to this, what inspired you to pursue a career in writing and getting published as opposed to just writing for fun? You know, I don't even know if I can remember a time that I wasn't totally in love with books and telling stories. Like I'm I'm really fortunate. I come from a family. My parents, we would go every week to the library and check out, you know, huge stacks of books. And, you know, my parents are both big readers. Um, My grandparents would read to me when I was little they would, you know, also the kind of people that would tell stories. Like I've just always been so lucky to be surrounded by books and I find it magical. Like I tell the story all the time. When I was a young kid, I got a hold of a Stephen King novel. I was about 11 or 12 and it was Salem's Lot. Um, and it's, you know, my, I, it's my mother's fault because my mom was like, you can read it if you want. Like, it's going to be really scary. Um, and I was all like, I can handle it. I'm, I won't be scared. I won't be scared. Um, and of course I was absolutely terrified. Like I can remember like laying in bed and being like, it's just a matter of time until the vampires come for me. Right. (laughs) Um, and I found it fascinating because I knew it was made up, right? Like, I think Mm -hmm. that's the most amazing thing. Even now, like you sit down with a book, like, you know, it's not real. Like I even now quote unquote know how the sausage is made. Right. So I can look at a book and I can be like, oh, they chose this point of view and they're doing Mm -hmm. this. But when a book is done really well, like it feels so real, like you're crying yeah. if it's sad or you're happy. Um, and I just wanted to do that. I had a teacher in, I went to Catholic school for 12 years and I had a teacher and we were torturing her about like, how much could you get away with and still get into heaven? Which is a very important <laughs> question when you're like 14. Like, um, and I remember one of the things that she said, which I have remembered my whole life so far, Um, is she said, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to be asked two questions. And those questions are, what have you done with the time you were given and the talents you were given? Um, And I think about that a lot. And, you know, one of my goals is I want to be a good person. Um, I want to, you know, make the world a better place. And I think the way that I can do that, the best way I can do that is by writing stories. Mm -hmm. Um, this is, this is what I'm good at. Not good at using commas, Um, not not so gifted in that particular area, but, but making stuff up, I can do that. 
Um, <laughs> and I, I'm not saying that I think I'm the best or that I still don't have a ton to learn because I do. Um, but I just get a lot of joy out of that. And, and from the time that I was writing, I knew that if I could make a career in this field, um, then that is what I wanted to do. And I always wanted to balance it with a bit of teaching. Um, mm-hmm. One, because I think spending all your time with your imaginary friends can be dangerous. <laughs> um, and two, because uh, I really enjoy seeing someone else tell their story. Like when you see mm-hmm. someone who has something and you see them getting better and you see their story growing and getting richer and deeper to me, that is just spectacular. And I think that's one of the things that I'm here to do. So that's mm-hmm. what I'm going to do. Yeah. And you taught us how to do that. So we still have our workshop group and it's that like, just makes me so happy. <laughs> <laughs> it's so rewarding to see everyone's work like mm-hmm. progress, especially Elise now that she's self-published. Oh, no. And uh, yeah, I don't know whose work excited for her to publish her first book like me or her. I was like screaming <laughs> about it. And so, yeah, there's something to be said about that, too. It's Seeing important. people, like, get their book out into the world, whether that's indie or traditional publishing, I don't actually make any differentiation. To me, it's mm-hmm. all, like, someone mm-hmm. who can get their story out to readers who want it. People who have won contests or have done, mm-hmm. you know, other things or gotten short stories published. Like, that's why we write, right? We write because we want to be read. Mm-hmm. If yeah. it wasn't about reading, then it wouldn't really matter, right? Because we could yeah. just make up stuff all the time. And I have some people who do, they like to write, but they have no interest really in telling stories. But I think the mm-hmm. nature of when we say telling stories is we want someone to listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And there's, there's, I can't think of, I mean, I never had a kid. So, you know, maybe people are like, I held a baby and it was a beautiful thing. It's true, right? <laughs> I'm sure it's lovely, but to see a book that you've written uh, in the hands of somebody else is an amazing thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't have to be toilet trained and it's not going to ask you money for money for college. <laughs> it's not going to crack up your car or, you know, does not car. talk back. It doesn't talk back. It never says, I never love you anyway. Except <laughs> in the drafting process. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so it's pretty spectacular. And, mm-hmm. and I would tell people, it's, it's really hard. And if I was going to give, you know, a last piece of advice as we kind of wrap up today or whatever, is I would tell people like, you don't know what will happen. You may get published, you may not get published, you may put your book out to the world, and it finds a huge readership, or it may not. But if you don't try, it for certain will not happen. Mm-hmm. If you decide like, oh, I give up, it's too hard. You know, I understand that I respect that you got to do what makes you healthy. But do know that if you keep trying, there is always that chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't deprive the world of your story. Someone Never. wants to read it, right? Yeah, they do. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I like yeah. that as a final word. Well, thank you so much yes, for thank joining you so much. us today. We are so pleased. I was so excited for this like for the past two months. I was like, we're going to talk to Eileen. <laughs> I couldn't sleep great. last night. I was like, I'm so excited. And that's the tea on battles and baddies. Thank you, Eileen, for joining us and sharing your knowledge. We love you. See you all again in two weeks. Happy writing.